You're listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. What did birth family reunion, drag and skating have in common? For Australian Korean adoptee Ellie Kim, all of these things have helped her get to where she is today. In this casual, wide-ranging convo, Ellie tells us about how meeting her birth family was a turning point in her life and how she learned to embrace her numerous identities with the help of community, writing and good mental health support. We also discuss self-care during lockdown, social media boundaries or lack thereof, and therapy via Zoom. For anyone who's unaware, Ellie and Ryan's current city of Melbourne is currently, as of this episode release, in its 241st day of lockdown, the longest, strictest lockdown in the world. There's not much we can say or do, but we like to think of this as an audio condolence message to all of our listeners undergoing lockdown in Melbourne and and elsewhere, and invite you to imagine that we're in your living room sharing a nice cup of tea, a hug, and some chocolate, preferably Cadbury marble. Ellie is a 30-something-year-old digital communications professional, sometime writer, and OK roller skater living in Melbourne. She met her birth family in 2013 as part of Goal's first trip home and is very slowly writing a book about it. Feel free to follow her on the gram at Irrelevancy for dodgy skate videos, dogs, and food. Hi, Ellie. Thank you so much for being with us today and chatting to us. Hi. <laughs> nice to see you. It's been like, um, when did I see you last in person? 2019 Ooh. in Seoul. We went out for barbecue and had some oh, yeah. in Hongdae. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Was that just after the gathering? Yeah, I think it was. Feels like such a long time it, ago. It feels like another <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> it's two years ago. Oh, gosh. And I remember thinking, will I, when will I ever see Hannah again? And then I think you were supposed to come home like not long after that, but um, COVID kind of changed things and you're still in Korea. <laughs> and I was meant to visit to Korea last year as well, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's, it's really hard, like probably especially for Australians right now with the travel bans, right? Like, yeah, because I could go to Korea, but it would be harder to get back. Mm. And you need an exemption to leave? Yeah, and I think you have to be fully vaccinated. And because our vaccination program is so slow, I am not fully vaccinated yet. It's, it's, a, it's a real mess. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to come back to this topic um, yes. <laughs> a bit later. Um, so if, if it's okay, we might just start off with your goal for Strip Home. And your um, birth family reunion in, we believe, 2013. Yep. So we were wondering kind of what prompted you to apply for the trip and, and how did it go? That's a big question. but How yeah. did it go? That is a massive question. So it, it's a bit of a long story. So throughout my entire like life up until then, I was not interested in finding my birth parents at all. Um, I kind of thought about them, and but it just seems way too hard. I didn't really travel overseas properly when I was younger and I obviously didn't speak Korean. I just thought, yeah, I wasn't really interested in finding my birth parents. And then in, yeah, early 2013, for some reason I was Googling Korean adoptees in Australia. 
before Korean adoptees in Australia existed <laughs> because <laughs> I was really curious about other Korean adoptees. Like I'd never really met another Korean adoptee properly and I was interested in everyone else's experiences but just didn't know and I thought, well, maybe the internet will have the answers. <laughs> I actually didn't find uh, any communities at that point. But I did find this survey by a research student in New South Wales. Her name was Hirohiza. And the the survey was on uh, your sense of community as a Korean adoptee. And I answered saying, I have none. <laughs> I can't find any. <laughs> and then after I finished this survey, Hira emailed everybody who did the survey and asked if they'd be interested in being interviewed for her research project. And I thought, sure, that sounds fun. Uh, so we met up in Brisbane. She was going all around Australia. And this was, yeah, I guess one of the first times I'd ever met another Korean adoptee properly. We were um, having a chat about my answers. And at the time I was doing a radio show for a community radio station called Where Are You From? And I thought, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone here and interview her. <laughs> so after my interview, I interviewed her and she told me her story. She kind of right off the bat said, I met my birth father. And that just completely blew my mind because I thought you that was just something you could never, ever do. And then she mentioned that she had been to a panel or something with other Korean adoptee researchers talking about how they found that a lot of Korean adoptees' files had been falsified. So there was fake information in them. And they used the example of, of the mother and father were factory workers and they fell in love, but the father left and the mother couldn't afford to keep the child and... Um, so she put the baby up for adoption and I started freaking out because that's very similar to what's on my adoption file. So I started to think, what if that's not true? Like, what's the mm. actual story here? And that's what got me really curious. Luckily, Hira gave me links to these Korean a lot online Korean adoptee communities that I hadn't found in on Google. They were all secret on Facebook. So <laughs> then that's when I connected with everybody on Facebook. Um, I joined the Korean Adoptees in Australia Facebook group and the Korean Adoptee one, which is like all the Korean Adoptees around the world. And that's where I heard about Goal. Um, they were doing their first trip home, which is um, uh, adoptees come to Korea when they've never been there before. And there's a bit of sightseeing and cultural learning and all that, but also there's an opportunity to do a birth family search. And I didn't think about it too hard and just did it and just applied. And I got selected. So I went along. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. Um, How old were you then? Like pretty young, uh, right? 20, 24. Did you have a similar experience to me in that it was kind of, um, I mean, amazing, but overwhelming? <laughs> like you just experience all these things for the first time and um, it's like I was so unprepared really, like emotionally unprepared, like 0% prepared. <laughs> Do you mean overwhelming as in like when you actually got to Korea? Yeah, just everything that happens on that trip and, um, yeah, everything it kind of opens you up to. Yeah, it was so overwhelming. I was very overstimulated. So um, I grew up in Brisbane, right? Brisbane's a pretty small, fairly quiet city. So going from Brisbane to like the middle of Seoul was <laughs> nuts to me. Um I think we, I remember we landed on a, a Tuesday night and I was just amazed that all the lights were on. There were people walking around and going to restaurants and like hanging out. And I was like, whoa, this is so different to what I'm used to. I nearly got run over by someone on a scooter while crossing the road. Um, <laughs> there was just so many people around. So there was that kind of aspect of it. And then 
I don't know if a lot of other adoptees experience this too, but when I was in Korea, and in fact, every other time I've been to Korea since then, I think, what would my life have been like if I'd grown up here? And I think about that a lot. And it, it's a massive question to mm. think about. Mm. What do you think it might have been like? I mean, I think about that too, sure. Like, um, <laughs> I built, yeah. built up this ridiculous story where, <laughs> so, um, so I found out my birth family um, grew up on a little island called Koje, which is like near Busan. So in my mind, I would have either gone to Seoul or Busan during university and become like a weird arty person. I feel like I would have dated some bad boy who delivers fried chicken on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> I love how specific. <laughs> um, and you would like ride on the back of the motorbike without a helmet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, sitting in those like tents, drinking soju and eating Doc Bocky would have been my life. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it much apart from that. Just the aesthetic value. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's too hard to think about because there's so many variables about who you are as a person. And I just really can't imagine Korean me. Sometimes <laughs> I wonder if like Korean me would have been, would be like a much um, emotionally simpler person, just like more uh, at, at peace. <laughs> like not necessarily like, I don't know. I mean, now, now this gets kind of a bit too big and philosophical, right? Like not necessarily uh, a happier, better life, but a, a simpler life. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that too. Like would I have been happier like not being adopted if I grew up in Korea? But, you know, having met my birth family and finding out that, you know, their history and their story is also pretty complicated as well. I'm like, well, it would have mm. just been like a different kind of trauma growing up probably. <laughs> So I've been doing these casual Korean classes uh, through Goal, actually, through with a um, a volunteer. She's this older lady who's retired and is now just teaching Korean and English like for fun. And we got onto talking about the the Korean concept of um, Han, which is like the collective like sadness that all Koreans feel about all the horrible things that have happened to Korea throughout history. So I, I feel like I probably would have had to deal with that. <laughs> If I'd stayed in Korea. <laughs> More of that. I mean, I think, yeah. like, you, you have it, like, inherited, right? It's, like, still in your body, but, yeah. Yeah, my teacher said it's in your DNA. <laughs> you know, I just realised I didn't kind of explain, like, meeting my parents. Should I? Oh, yeah, if you, if you like to. That? I just realised you asked me, like, what was it like to meet your parents? And I did not answer that. So, so Goal basically helped me do the birth family search and... To my complete shock, I did end up finding my birth mother and father. So the first thing I found out was that they were still together, which um, the, my adoption file had a different story about that. I also found I had four siblings, which I did not know about, and they didn't know about me either. So I got to meet my Oma and upper at first, and then like a few days later I got to meet the rest of my siblings. So to describe how that felt, it was – a real mess of emotions. Like I was very happy. And then I had this sense of like, like grieving, I guess, like, because I met my parents, I thought they were fantastic people. And I thought, wow, it's really sad that I didn't get to grow up with them. And I had that feeling as well when I met my sisters, because they're all really great as well. So it was kind of happy and sad and really, really strange. It's so strange to meet these people who are kind of complete strangers, but you also know that they're biologically related to you. It's it's the strangest feeling. <laughs> I, I remember when I met my sisters and 
it was we we're just making small talk like so what do you do what what do you what are you like your hobbies and I was like this is and you know I was chatting away and every couple of minutes it would just hit me like these are your sisters <laughs> <laughs> this is not just like meeting someone new at like a networking event these are your blood relatives who you've never met before this is a huge deal and it's um not a, a common experience that and not something I was prepared for at all but it was it was great. It was really great to meet them. After that trip, when you went back to Australia, what was that like? Meeting my family happened over the course of like four days when I was in Shit. Korea and then I had to go home. <laughs> so <laughs> that happened and I was like, cool, great, nice to meet you, bye, back to Australia. Came back to Brisbane and I was a, like a complete mess. I suppose I felt like I didn't get a chance to really process what had happened. It was I was in, a, in complete shock. And I was not really happy to be back in Australia and just really wanted to be back in Korea and wanted to be back with my family because there were just so many questions that were left unanswered that we didn't really get to talk about. And I suddenly became really interested in Korea because I wasn't before and now suddenly knowing that I had this family connection, I was suddenly really interested. I suppose I should mention as well that I did not think that I'd meet my family because I went on this trip thinking, oh, it'd be fun to go to Korea and I'll have a go at this birth family search thing. But like, I'm not expecting to find anything because so many adoptees um, have tried to find their families and it's not happened for whatever reason. So I just assumed that would happen to me. So was not prepared for actually meeting them. And that just kind of completely changed my worldview and my view on everything. Like it made me think, what am I doing with my life? Um, I now suddenly have this family in another country. Uh, what am I going to do? So, yeah, I was not okay for a while. Um, I reached out to an adoption counsellor in Queensland with the Benevolent Society uh, to mm. talk about what had happened. And she said, okay, you're the first inter-country adoptee that I've ever counselled. I was like, oh, great. Um, Yay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she worked with domestic adoptees who'd kind of had like a very similar experience meeting their birth families. And I remember she said something like, you've been through – a really unusual experience. It would actually be weird if you were okay with everything. Mm. I just remember in Brisbane for a couple of months, I just really threw myself into work. I don't remember much else. It just seems like a big blur to me. And then at some point I, I just said, I have to go back to Korea in some way. Uh, I wasn't earning a lot of money at the time and I thought I can't really afford a holiday. So I'm just going to make, uh, you know, take a chance and work there for a year. So I applied to be an English teacher. In 2014, in July, I went back to Korea. So you're um, in your birth family, you're the youngest of five sisters. Four, yeah. I mean, yes, sorry, yeah, I am the fifth. Oh, my God, wow. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and your, uh, yeah, your parents were still together? Yeah, absolutely. Like my adoption file had that story that they'd met and I was born out of wedlock and my father said bye and peaced out. So I was pretty surprised when I met them and they were still happily married. I also didn't think I'd meet my father because I assumed he was just not in the picture. So mm. to be told kind of at the last minute, by the way, you, you, he's your father. I was like, oh, <laughs> was not <laughs> expecting that. And um, he's a, a really lovely man and I feel awful that I thought he was like, this dude who abandoned my mother because <laughs> he's, he's a really nice person. I'm wondering, like, uh, how is your 
if you don't, if you feel comfortable talking about this, like how's your mm. relationship with your um, with your birth family like developed since then? So now it's been um, I can't do math like eight years. Eight years. Oh my god, it has you've been, been reunited. Years. So it's been a bit all over the place. There's no guidebook on this stuff. <laughs> so when I first met them in Korea, there was an interpreter there. So that's a little bit awkward. Although my mother was really forthcoming on telling me a lot of things about our family and like why I was adopted and all that stuff. Um, luckily, some of my sisters can speak a bit of English. So I was able to communicate with them. And then when I came back in 2014, I thought, I just really want to get to know them and get closer to them. Yeah, so I saw my birth family probably about like every month or so um, while I was living in Korea. I'd go visit them or we'd go do something together. My Oma really likes hiking like every other older <laughs> Korean lady. So we'd go check out a temple or a mountain or something. But the language barrier was really upsetting to me at the time. So I was learning Korean. I just started. I was seeing a tutor uh, where I was living in Jeonju and I was – you know, trying my best, but I guess I was at very, very beginner level Korean and I got, would get so quickly frustrated with how I couldn't understand what my family was saying. So sometimes when I'd visit my Oma and Appa in their apartment, like all my other sisters were there too and they'd be chatting away and I'd just only understand like 10% of what they were saying. Yeah, it was really upsetting and really stressful, really got me down um, because I wanted to be closer to them and I felt like this was really stopping me from getting closer. But I'd say that it's been pretty positive. So even though we're, we're not as close as I would like, like I haven't, haven't had any like issues with them. I've also gotten to meet all my aunts and uncles and my cousins. So my <laughs> my Oma and Appa are like one of six children and all of their brothers and sisters have at least three kids and some of those kids have kids. So it's a massive, massive family and I've met all what, like 35 of my cousins. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> my cousins have been really accepting of me, which has been so lovely. We've hung out a few times at, like, family gatherings and, um, you know, had dinner, played drinking games with soju and, like, sung karaoke together, and it's been a really positive experience. I guess I also should mention, um, like, it hasn't all been sunshine and rainbows. There has been a few times where, like, and I hear this is really common with adoptees who've reunited with their birth parents that sometimes my oma was a little bit overbearing when I was living in Korea. So like she'd go through all my stuff and clean them. And I'm like, I'm a 25 year old woman. You don't need to clean my stuff. <laughs> or um, she came to my apartment a couple of times to, to clean it. And I was like, I feel so uncomfortable. Um, like what, uh, she just start cleaning up the kitchen or something or. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so like, so awkward. Do you ever feel, um, and I ask you this because, I mean, sometimes I've felt this way. Um, do you ever feel sometimes like uh, almost a sense of guilt that um, that your own reunion experience has been like overall quite positive and like successful compared to some other adoptees? Oh, for sure. Like on that first trip home, there were a couple of people in our group that just didn't get anywhere with their birth search. Like their yeah. social workers didn't tell them anything or, yeah, just complete dead end. There were some adoptees in the group who, like their situation was that they were abandoned in a public place or something. There was just nothing, absolutely no information at all. And I felt really horrible, like, you know, because at the end of the day, 
we'd be all eating dinner or something and someone would ask, well, how was, what did you do get up to today? And some people would be like, oh, I went to my hometown and was searching around. And then I'm like, I met my parents <laughs> and I felt everyone was really happy for me, but I also felt so awful. And I was like, why, how come I get to meet my parents, but you don't? There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. And I felt that, that again in 2019 when I went to the, the ICA gathering in Seoul because I met quite a few people who um, were doing their birth family search while they were at ICA, which is so full on. And I had a few conversations with people who, like, they'd found a parent, but the parent didn't want to get into contact with them for whatever reason. Or, again, they'd found a dead end in their search. Meanwhile, uh, just before the conference started, I'd gone down to spend the weekend with my mother's side of the family, like, in a pension, <laughs> B&B kind of situation I felt so guilty I'm like I've just spent the weekend with like both my parents or my sisters or my cousins or my aunts and uncles and like meanwhile you can't find like one birth relative and it's um hard to deal with mm-hmm. I have nothing insightful <laughs> to, to, to add here um I yeah. think that's um a really important feeling to acknowledge though that was a really good question. <laughs> I appreciate. I mean, I, I have a, a close friend, um, an, an American adoptee, and I was talking about my close, like relatively close relationship with my Korean aunt and uncle, and um, and I had written this little piece about my uncle, and um, she'd read it, and she she said to me like. You know, she's like, oh, I really liked your piece. And she, and she said, I, I also just wanted to say that actually, like, it makes me feel really jealous. Like, I have never, I haven't had a relative um, who has kind of considered me and my adoptee perspective in that way or who has tried to kind of make space for me in Korea in that way. And, um in that moment, actually, I was just really grateful for her honesty about that. And I just realized I've, I've also been quite, um, like, really fortunate with um, with my birth family in some ways. So, yeah, I think, like, even just to, like, acknowledge these things is, is uh, probably important. Yeah. Mm. I remember, like, in the early days when I'd met my birth family and I had no idea what to do. I had no idea how to navigate this relationship. And I was feeling, like, really stressed about not being able to communicate with them and also trying to understand the cultural barriers. And then I also felt like at the time I I didn't want to voice those concerns in, like, these um, Korean adoptee online communities I was in because I was really aware that a lot of people hadn't met their families and mm. I was like I just sound like I'm whinging <laughs> and that's I don't mean to sound like I'm whinging like it's so wonderful that I've met my birth family but it, like it can be a bit challenging but then I, I, I was just aware of like how that might sound to people who would like they would kill to meet their birth family and here I am saying oh my Oma is a bit strange sometimes <laughs> what do I do so yeah that's something I'm definitely aware of so you and Ryan are both in Melbourne at the moment and Melbourne um has been in strict lockdown for over 200 days so kind of like like four months or something of last year and um now a couple of months of this year Yep. Actually, Ellie and I are like two streets away. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's like partially testament to the lockdowns that despite that, we are recording this episode online. <laughs> we are not allowed to meet unless exactly. we're exercising together. <laughs> unless you're exercising. Yes. <laughs> so you, you could meet to go for a walk or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, Although I, so. I don't think yeah. it would sound so great, like the recording of me like huffing and puffing while like talking about <laughs> the block with Ryan. <laughs> Actually, I want to ask like, how you're both going in a way like when I've spoken to to other friends in Melbourne uh, like everyone's finding it hard everyone's finding it harder than last year even Mm. (laughs) yeah when we're in lockdown last year I was more okay with it I was like fair enough like there's a lot of COVID going around the in the world right now I don't want to catch it I don't even want to go to the pub I don't want (laughs) to go anywhere so this is good I'm glad we're at home and it was pretty rough because it went on for so long and there were a lot of rules, which I thought were a bit strange. Like, you're not allowed to go more than 5Ks from your house and you have to exercise in one hour and everything was closed. But then we were out of it and life was great. But this time I'm not okay with this lockdown <laughs> because it's like the first one was kind of useless. It, it's just gone on for too long, I think. What I've realised is that it's kind of forced us all into this really unhealthy lifestyle where we don't get to see our friends, we can't see our family, we can't go out and have fun. We've just got to work, just working all the time, and that's horrible. Or you might have lost your job and have no money, which also sucks. Yeah. yeah. Painting a great picture for you to return to, Hannah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky enough to even God. get in. You know, honestly, I was saying this to a friend the other day. I... I do not think that my mental health is resilient enough to do a two-week hotel quarantine and then live in lockdown either by myself or with my parents. I I don't think I could handle that, actually. Yeah, sounds like the worst. Um, this is this is so sad. But I was literally telling um, my partner M like a couple hours ago. I would be happy to be on public transport for two hours, like to just be on a train and to look out the window. Like you don't even have to let me out. I just want to be on a bus somewhere or like in a car, like Hannah Space right now. It's just gold. Um, but you know, it's just like oh god, it's like the same old. And I feel like pretty. I mean, I don't know how you feel, Ellie, but like I feel pretty you know, I'm pretty grateful that like it's a reasonably leafy suburb. There's like this beautiful walking track, like the Mary Creek trail, which I've been on like almost every day. And like, those are fantastic. And I feel very privileged to like, you know, not feel like I'm living in like a concrete jungle, but even then, even like, despite that, it's still, yeah, really taxing. Yeah. Cause F5K is just Brunswick pretty much. And Brunswick is awesome. I love living in Brunswick, but when it's open, because a fun day out in Brunswick for me is like going to the op shop and then going to get something really nice to eat and just having a walk around and going to have a beer maybe. And then, but you can't do any of that in lockdown. So it's just boring. (laughs) And suddenly I'm like, oh, Brunswick sucks. But that's because it's not open. (laughs) What kind of impact do you guys think it's had on you? Like um, people have mentioned just feeling like very tired and unmotivated. Um, this is, I guess, a dark question. But, yeah, what kind of impact do you think it's had like over the last couple of months? I'm definitely been more angry. 
because I'm angry that we're in this situation, like, still after such a long time. And it's maybe very, yeah, unmotivated to do things because, yeah, I've had a couple of times where I'm like, why do I have to do this Excel spreadsheet when people are, like, dying and I can't get vaccinated and I'm not allowed to have fun? This is so stupid. And the lack of socialisation is really getting to me, mm. like, not being able to see my friends but also just, like, incidental social stuff, like doing some kind of group activity, just going outside and there's people around and I'm not the most social person in the world, but suddenly I'm really missing that. I was thinking about this today, like before this podcast, in terms of like being a Korean adoptee. And I I feel like there's been times during lockdown where I've really felt like my sense of identity has been messed with. <laughs> As in, so usually when we're not in lockdown, uh, the Korean adoptees who live in Melbourne meet up every couple of weeks to have KBBQ or fried chicken and have a grand old time. And then I like to visit Korea every now and again. And not being able to do those things has kind of affected my connection to Korea and being a Korean adoptee. I kind of think, well, if I can't have any connection to Korea, then who am I? (laughs) Identity Mm. crisis. (laughs) You know what? I think that's really interesting because I'll just ask it because I don't want to speak on behalf of Hannah, but like I feel like Hannah and I have had conversations where the fact that she's living there during a pandemic has also meant that she's not getting the experience that she'd hoped um, she might get from living there. And so that's like also a really mm. interesting kind of, you know, other side of this whole <laughs> thing that we're living through. Right, because in Korea you've got like restrictions on how many people you can hang out with and you can't do stuff after like 9pm and things like that. But like I know in Korea like socialising with a big group late at night is such a big part of the culture. And like the adoptee community too, right? Yeah. In Korea, which I think has yeah not been able to. Yeah, but I think it would be really hard to to just not be able to come here at all and have to like cancel your trips and um I think it's interesting. I wonder if um, this pandemic time has made some adoptees reflect more on Korea and think like, oh, you know, I, I, I definitely want to visit or I, I definitely want to have that experience of living there as soon as like the, the pandemic um, allows for it. Yeah. just curious like as someone that works in digital communications who's also in lockdown do you find like do you place any um like personal boundaries on social media use like for yourself like do you find I just find that when I'm kind of like in the house and like you know it's like level four restrictions or whatever in in Korea that I use social media like way more actually and I kind of hate it (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I, I totally get into like a kind of like death scroll or whatever you call it. Which which social media? Like all of them or? I, uh, I guess more so Instagram is like designed more, I think, for like rapid scrolling. Mm. Do you think? Mm. And even like stories and bullshit. And um, yeah, but I also like check Facebook, even though there's like nothing to check there really. But I still, <laughs> I still like regularly check it for some, it's, it's just kind of habit and boredom and then like Mm. I mean nine times out of ten I feel worse for having (laughs) checked social media (laughs) yeah um I'm probably not the right person to talk about boundaries because I do this too but 
we're kind of in this really rubbish situation where we, we're not really allowed to socialise and to go out and do fun stuff. So there's nothing to do except look at social media. But social media is a cesspit of horribleness. There's just like mm. because there's nothing else to talk about, everyone's just talking about COVID and lockdowns and vaccines and everyone's got very heated opinions on all those subjects. And then everyone fights and everyone's really grumpy anyway because they're in lockdown <laughs> and it's just horrible. Like I really shouldn't be looking at Facebook because I just get angry. But I do because out of habit and I'm hoping, oh, maybe I'll see a cute cat video or something. But no, nine times out of ten, it's someone arguing about vaccines, which is terrible. Um, I think some social media networks are better than others, like right now. Like, um, yeah, Instagram's good because it's just photos. I like to watch a lot of videos and TikTok's fun. Uh, Twitter is terrible. Facebook is terrible. (laughs) Am I going to get sued if I say that publicly? (laughs) (laughs) um and I guess I try and um at the moment I use the mute and the block functions a lot like if somebody oh now oh no everyone's gonna know um, (laughs) you know some of my friends who I or people I follow on social media they might be all right every other time but you know suddenly they want to talk about lockdown all the time I'll just kind of mute them for a little while until they've got it out of their system and Mm. they're nice to interact with again and, yeah, I do kind of block people or unfriend people who are being too negative about it or have terrible opinions. <laughs> so let's say, I don't know, say on Instagram you might follow, like, uh, hundreds of people, right, hundreds of accounts. You just freely mute people just whenever you need to. Yes. Yeah. Accounts, yeah. <laughs> but you don't set any, like, limits for yourself or, like um, – I should, but (laughs) I have no (laughs) self-control. Actually, I had, like, a final, final question about, like, lockdown and and well-being. Um, So (laughs) I guess you guys, like, have to do therapy and stuff online because that's, like, Mm. I'm curious, how do you guys find it? Yeah, it's fine to me. I mean, my therapist actually lives pretty far away from me, so it's um pretty convenient. I, I think it's a little easier to talk to her like in person, but it's otherwise fine. Over um we do FaceTime mm-hmm. and that's not an issue. We still get to talk about the same things that I talk about in person. Is she like in an office? Or is it like you can see like, I don't know, like pile of clothes in the background or something. <laughs> I'm not sure what my therapist deal is. Like sometimes she's at home and sometimes she's in her office. Okay. I'm not sure what the rules are. Do you find it the same, Ryan? Like do you find it pretty much just as good as in person? No, I think it's not as good. And I think that is not to do with my therapist. I think that actually is to do with me. Like I think that, I don't know, it's easier for me to like – get in that headspace of like I'm going to therapy and I'm like I'm here to do something and I you know I need to show up for it and like there's something about leaving the house and going there and being in the waiting room and then being put into this room that now I know quite well and then it's just really not the same online and it's probably allowed me to be a kind of like lazy client yeah I don't know I feel like I'm not putting as much in so I'm not getting as much out of it and it's like easy to Mm. kind of be lazy I don't know that's that's what does laziness in a session look like that you're kind of like 
like you're not really talking about like the real issues or like what does that look like for you? I guess not pushing myself or not pushing myself to the extent that I would if it was in person. I don't know, everyone has different opinions about this, but like, I feel like there's just a really, it's a really different kind of sense of being present when you're like in front of a person physically. And a lot of the work that I do with my therapist is like, it's about being in the same space together. It's about reading bodily cues. And like, you just really, I think, lose a lot of that in, in an online environment. And so I think I'm not really, yeah, maybe I'm also just tired. So I'm not like really bringing myself into that space in the right way. Like, and I know that it's so here, okay, here's how it's really late. Like I know when it's lazy is if in my head, it's like, oh, here's another zoom appointment among many, mm. right? Like it's just another zoom meeting. And like, that's really, that's lazy. Cause like that defeats a purpose. And I need to learn like to work with the situation in a way where I'm still getting as much out of it. Mm. All right. <laughs> um, okay, so let's do. Um, we had our first topic, and I kind of, we kind of like did a ninety degree turn, and now let's do another one. Let's <laughs> just get all our feelings out about lockdown. <laughs> um, so we read your recent piece for Archer Magazine, Ellie. Which um, oh, thank you. Yeah, congrats. We really enjoyed. Yeah. Everyone go look for it and read it. It's called Celebrating My <gasps> Korean-Australian Identity at a Drag Bar in Seoul, 27th of July, Archer Magazine. <laughs> yeah, let's just, let's just ask you to read this, this quote from the, from the article to, to open this conversation. Sure. Years of shame, racism, and biphobia had told me that I wasn't good enough, not straight enough, not queer enough, woman enough, Asian enough, Australian enough. Outside of those walls, we were all sins and illegal. But in that drag bar, we danced. We celebrated Korea, we celebrated queerness, and I celebrated myself. Would you say, um, I don't know, it just seems like you've, you've kind of been on this, this journey uh, in the last few years of, like, um, embracing these different identities, you know, Korean, adoptee, queer, which, which is beautiful. Um, what has helped you, do you think, become more, like, proud and confident in who you are? Well, boring answer, seeking mental health help and seeing a therapist. That helps quite a lot with all the, the practical strategies of, you know, liking yourself and being happy with yourself. I feel like this is not the answer that everyone likes to hear, but going to Korea and meeting for my, my birth family for the first time really was a massive turning point in my life. Like, before that happened, I was depressed. My anxiety was out of control. Um, I yeah, was not happy with myself, wasn't really happy with my life. And then after that happened, I wanted my birth family to be proud of me. And I thought I need to get my shit together. <laughs> so after I met my birth family and I had this, suddenly had this connection to Korea, like this tangible connection to Korea, mm -hmm. I really started examining like who I am and what my identity is. And that's been a, hasn't been an easy journey. Like when I went back to Korea in 2014 to live there, I went into it thinking like, I just want to blend in with all the other Koreans and just assimilate. And I'm sure you both know that doesn't work. 
<laughs> when you've grown up in Australia for like over 20 years and you can't really speak Korean. <laughs> and that would really get me down. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I realized, you know what? I am a Korean Australian adoptee. I'm not just Korean. I'm not just Australian. I'm all the things. Ever since then, going back to Korea has been a lot easier. And I've been more okay with being the foreigner, even though I used to be really ashamed of that when I first went to Korea. Interestingly, like the last time I went to Korea, um, with all of this in mind, like I'd be talking to random like Korean taxi drivers and people I was buying things off from the shops and they would say like, oh, are you a gyopo? Like, are you an overseas Korean? And then I'd kind of explain a, a short version of my life story. But I felt really happy that Koreans were clocking me as like Korean, but not from Korea. I don't know why that made me like really happy, <laughs> I guess. Mm. And along with that, like just meeting other like-minded people has really helped. Like I mm-hmm. didn't really have many Asian friends growing up, didn't know any Korean adoptees until like my 20s. Meeting other Korean adoptees has been awesome. <laughs> um, I've been meeting more Asian Australians. I've been meeting more queer people, more queer Asian people and realizing like, hey, I really like this these people. Oh, I am kind of like these people I'm meeting. Maybe I'm okay with myself too. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a really weird way mm-hmm. to explain it. But <laughs> it's been a very long gradual process and there's still times where it, everything still feels a little bit hard. And I guess some days I get really down about it. I'm like, oh, why is my life so weird? Why can't I just be normal? <laughs> I couldn't have just been like not adopted (laughs) but I guess you just gotta accept that's just what has happened and move on with it I suppose that's a that's a very hard question Hannah (laughs) (laughs) RuPaul says that those voices never go away (laughs) well he would know can I ask, um, I really enjoyed that piece you wrote, which um, was really beautiful. Oh, thank you. And it got me thinking about, I mean, because I feel this quite a lot, that there are actually not many spaces where all those different sorts of like elements, right, can all kind of shine and just like mm. be, be there. And often I find at least like certain contexts will require diminishing or limiting one certain part of my identity and I'm wondering how you kind of find those spaces or create those spaces in Melbourne well I I mean do you mean like in terms of like queer Korean adoptees like specifically I guess just um I guess it doesn't really have to be tied to other people's identities per se but like if that kind of freedom I guess that you're describing in your piece in that drag bar in Seoul, if you can, if you found that here as well, kind of, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I'm never gonna find exactly a queer Korean adoptee community in Melbourne. Like that's very specific. <laughs> um, hang on, before I get on with this, I do want to mention that in this article that I wrote for Archer, I talked about how I met a bunch of other queer Korean adoptees at the ICA, at an ICA workshop, and Ryan was one of the speakers. <laughs> And it was, it was fantastic. And it was like such a nice moment. I talked about how it was really cool to meet all these other queer Korean adoptees because I, yeah, not, I suppose not had that kind of discussion with anyone else before. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Thank you. It was really cute to read that because I remember that night and it was a (laughs) wonderful night. Yeah. You were there. (laughs) It was so much fun. You were both there. Yeah. I think I was there. Who? (laughs) You were. (laughs) It was 
fun. Yeah, it was. I remember we drank a lot of nasty wine. Um, and then from that, I guess, to now answer your question, I just felt more comfortable being myself in um, different situations. Like I have met a bunch of other bisexual people in Melbourne and been pretty open about being a Korean adoptee. And instead of like, I probably wouldn't have talked about that previously, but now I feel comfortable about it. And um, a lot of people are really interested in it and really accepting of it. And that's all that matters. Like, I think we all feel like being rejected based on, bits of our identity in different spaces. So I, I guess I feel more okay with addressing that and being upfront about it. And I guess like if people want to reject me for that reason, then I'll just leave. But that hasn't <laughs> happened. Most people have been pretty cool about who I am. I guess we have a question about um, what drag means to you personally or what, what do you love about it? I kind of talked about this a bit in the article I wrote, but um, growing up, as a little girl, I would always question things about gender. Like why do, why is pink for girls and why is blue for boys? I didn't, I was kind of that, I don't know what the politically correct term for this is, is now, but like at the time I was like a tomboy. So I didn't like feminine things. I had more interests that I guess were aligned with boys, which is like a ridiculous (laughs) idea. Um, yeah, I used to question that a lot and I guess I grew up in a pretty conservative environment where it's like, well, you have to do certain things and like certain things because you're a girl and it just never quite meshed well with me. And then, like, the first time I saw drag, I was like, holy crap, there's a, there's a man in a dress wearing makeup, wearing, like, massive heels and everyone is, like, loving it. <laughs> this is the best. And it just kind of turned this idea of, like, you know, if you don't like, if you don't act like your gender, that's bad. But then seeing a drag queen kind of proved that wrong. And I thought that was absolutely awesome. I also love seeing drag kings. That is pretty rad too. I just love, I just love the idea of playing with gender and not taking it that seriously. And also, I, I don't know, I like makeup and glitter <laughs> as well. <laughs> Very superficial thing. Drag queen makeup is incredible. <laughs> So we have some random questions. And so the idea is to um, not think too hard about your answers and just like fire back, basically. (laughs) Okay, I'll try. So we know from your social media that um, you've really gotten gotten into like roller skating and the Mm. skating community recently. Um, So what's the latest skating trick that you've learned? Oh, um, just... Skating in a skate park, that's been my lockdown project. So going skating on ramps and in a bowl and dropping in and trying to jump around. I fall over a lot, but I'm still learning. (laughs) What's dropping in? Uh, How do I explain this without sounding like using all these random skate words? Um, It's when you stand on the edge of a ramp or a bowl and there's like like a round sort of pipe thing and you stand on the edge and then you just kind of roll in. Oh. Yeah, it's and it's really scary on roller skates. sounds scary. You roll. Because you just have to, like, you're basically just letting your body drop down. Oh, is it a bit like um, like abseiling or something? Your brain is saying, don't do this, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to show you an Instagram video or something. But it, it's like, it's so hard because it's sort of like like an edge, uh-huh. right? And the, the pipe is, like, on the, the corner 
and to drop in on roller skate, you, you kind of just have to stand on the the coping, so that edge bit, and just tip yourself forward. And your brain is saying, "Don't do that. You'll die. Mm. You'll break your teeth." <laughs> but you don't. But um, <laughs> that's why it's so yeah. scary. <laughs> Psychologically, it's very yeah. challenging. <laughs> okay, number two, your chocolate of choice during lockdown. Oh, Cadbury Marble, so delicious, so so sugary, (laughs) just pure sugar. Oh, I've got so many like new Cadbury varieties waiting for me when I make it back. (laughs) I have to mail it to you, Hannah. Oh my god! If you uh, okay, no, no, I don't want to. If anyone actually did that, I would just die. I would be like grateful forever. Yeah, forever grateful. Let's do it. You can no, join no, our addiction. No, Hannah. don't. I don't want to burden you guys. All right. Okay. Next. Next. <laughs> um, okay. Three favorite RuPaul's Drag Race contestant. <gasps> <laughs> or, okay, or like top uh, two or three, if that's difficult to just choose one. Okay. I got to think quick. Kimchi, obviously. Um, Korean, also just like amazing and hilarious. Um, oh my god. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the last. Juju B, classic. Ah, oh, shivers. Um, who's my third favorite? Oh. oh, Katya, of course. Very good. Um, Katya's wheeze laugh brings me joy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna squeeze in. Um, a follow-up question to number three. Three A. Recent All Stars season. Have you finished it? Yes. Okay. Was the winner the winner of your choice? I actually didn't think she was going to win. I thought someone else was getting set up to be the winner because you know how they edit Jag Race. There's a bit of a winner's edit. So I was actually quite shocked that she won. But I'm happy that she won because she's great. Yeah. Okay. And she I, smashed that lip sync. Oh, I yeah. take it that you're not, Ryan. Are you not happy with that? <laughs> I really love Kylie. There's a I, huge butt coming. I think it's, no, and also I think it's fantastic that a trans woman won. Like, I think that's huge. But I did, I was really behind Raja. And um, I don't think that Raja got the love that she really deserved um, because of the amount of just growth that she's had since her season. Well, I thought Ginger was going to win. It was a great, like, they were all so strong, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good season. <laughs> okay, right. next, a writer who inspires you? Um, so at the moment, Nicole Chung, who wrote the memoir, All You Can Ever Know, she is a Korean adoptee in the US and she edits a few different magazines. Um, she writes a column. I just think it's really cool that she wrote a book about her adoption experience. There are a lot of times that book where she was just so bang on with how adoptees feel about like family and, and race. And there's not a lot of books out there written by adoptees about adoption. So I, I just think it's really cool that she did that. And she still continues to write about her experience as an adoptee. Uh, number five, a writing tip that's been particularly useful for you late um, recently. A little while ago, before the Rona, I went to a Melbourne Writers' Festival panel with Michelle Law, who was talking mm-hmm. about being angry, and her tip was to write when you're angry and then edit when you've calmed down. And I've nice. kind of <laughs> adapted this tip. Um, I tend to word vomit and just 
I don't know, have got a lot of feelings. I'll just be like, Bleh, and put it into a document, but then come back like a day later and edit it. Nice. Do you have a favourite Korean alcoholic beverage? I'm really into flavoured soju at the moment. Oh, it's, like which There ones? are many different flavours. Um, the grape one's quite nice. It takes it tastes like those sweet Korean grapes. I also like the grapefruit soju. The thing is they, they all taste like juice, which is very dangerous. <laughs> so you got to be careful. Have you guys seen the um, the colour munchy one? Like the, the, you know, those little small like Asian limes. Do you get that flavour? Have you seen that? No. I haven't seen anyway. it, no. It's good? Yeah, I think so. I think it's one of the better like, it's like tart, you know. I can't believe how much that's blown up because I remember – I sound like such a wanker. Um, when I was still living in Korea, I think in 2014, flavoured sojus suddenly became a thing for the first time. And I went out with a bunch of other English teachers and we d- decided to try every flavour. <laughs> what I a just, bonding yeah, experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so shocked that it's become such a commonplace thing now. Mm. I can't believe before we were just drinking the, the standard flavoured soju that tastes like lighter fluid (laughs) (laughs) well these days there are like um those like brooklyn hipsters that make like the fancy soju too like there's (laughs) oh what (laughs) the toki soju that comes from anyway i think like a bunch of like couples from brooklyn in new york make that and um yeah i think there's like other a friend recently gave me this um, bottle of cucumber soju. Oh, yeah, which refreshing. Is, yeah, sounds. Yeah. Last question: What are you watching on Netflix right now? Oh man, I just finished watching The White Lotus. Oh, oh, oh that's not on Netflix, but I watched it illegally. <laughs> 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 Edit that out. Um, yeah, The White Lotus is great. Um, if you haven't seen it already, you should totally watch it. Uh, this is so embarrassing, but I've been binge watching Catfish just because oh. I'm so, like, tired lately that I just want to watch trash and Catfish <laughs> is trash. <laughs> it's just terrible, but it's so much fun. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. If you like what you hear, please recommend us to your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I guess I wanted to ask, like, uh, yeah, do you have certain um, strategies or rituals or routines that um, that you've developed during lockdown too? Oh, this is going to make me sound so sad. So... <laughs> um, my family dog that I loved dearly died last year, right before I went to Korea, actually, like, I think the weekend before. And so I was kind of a mess going to Korea. <laughs> um, but anyways, he was a Westie. And so um, I started doing this thing where every time I go for a walk, I count how many Westies I see. And usually one is like a pretty good day and two is like an outrageously good day. And I've started like taking like stealth photos every time I see a Westie and sending it to my partner and my sister is now joined in too. So we have these like daily Westie photo sessions, um, which is really, really cute. So 
that's been a, a small thing. And um, the other day, because my partner is like, I can't just take photos of other people's dogs. Like, you know, she's she's too nice for that. So the other day, I got a photo from her where she'd clearly spoken to the owner because the dog was like real close to the camera <laughs> and facing her. Um, yeah, so she'd like gone up to this woman. It's like, I'm so sorry. Can I take a photo of your dog? Because my partner really <laughs> loves Westies. And so I got a photo of Scarlett. That's adorable. Scarlett's a Westie, so that was really cute. That's so cute. My partner and I go out cat spotting. Oh, There's a lot of cats who live in our neighborhood and now we kind of know where they all live. Gosh, that sounds really creepy. And we try and spot the cats. We've given them all names. We've invented like very elaborate backstories for them. Nice. <laughs> it's fun. I feel like people who um, haven't experienced a strict lockdown will be like, what the fuck? Is that? <laughs> oh, yeah, we've all, we've all gone completely about? nuts in Melbourne. Like we've all gone we're all not okay. <laughs> like we're um, all, um, a lot of us are like madly online shopping and buying crap we don't need, day drinking constantly, <laughs> getting really obsessed with our own hobbies. My partner recently received an Udi through some promotion at work. and What's he's just uh, It's like a hoodie, but it's made out of a big blanket. It's very warm. So he's just been wearing an Udi 24-7. He looks like a wizard. How do you spell it? <laughs> hoodie, like hoodie, but without the H. Oh, <laughs> oh, so it's like um oh. a bit like a long, like cross a, a hoodie with a um a moo. Yeah, it's a moo. <laughs> um, it's a moo moo. Yeah, I don't know if it's a, is it a moo moo the the full word. So. Uh, it's a um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ellie, can you describe a, a mumu? It's like a long, um, like a massive cloak, I guess. Oh, a big shapeless cloak. So an udi is like that, but like it's a blanket and it has a hood on it. Is it like the full body length? Yes. Does it have Very a zipper, big. or is it more um, like a like a nightgown? You just, like, you just put it on your head. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> so wow. my partner's just been wearing this Udi like every minute of the day and it's, just remember to take it off if he leaves the house <laughs> okay so it's basically like a big blanket and you pick it up like you grab the middle of the blanket and like hold it up and then you like you like cut a hole in the top and then you yeah. then you add a hood on it yes <laughs> oh my God. That was very visual. I, I followed every step. <laughs> and like a lot of people I know have said, oh, I've got an Udi and I'm obsessed with it. And wow. I'm trying to resist the urge to get one. 